Amen. What a beautiful song, beautiful reminder. All the things that we put our hope in besides Jesus, all the, the idols that we tend to build for ourselves. It reminds me of John Calvin, the, the great theologian, said our hearts are idol factories, just cranking out idols one after the other. And we, we tend to put our hope in so many things besides Christ. On Wednesday night, we got to hear from Tetiana and Daniel Yarbrough. We all just raise your hands. They're from Ukraine. They're missionaries uh, in a town called Vinitsa. You may have seen that in the news uh, lately. But to think about what we struggle with here as compared to what their, their team who's still on the ground there in Vinitsa, what they're going through. Uh, they have a, a mission house that their organization was able to buy, and they normally sleep about 20 people in that house, which is amazing. Now they're housing 50 or more in that house, in one house. So they had to send generators because the power's been knocked out, and they had to send washer and dryer because there's a lot more laundry than uh, one washer and dryer can handle. And the, what the perspective that we gain on our problems, you know, we tend to put our hope in things of comfort and leisure instead of the urgency that we are reminded of that if Christ is all you have, Christ is all you need. And I pray that it doesn't take us coming to a, a point of desperation or of war to figure that out. So uh, we are blessed to have the Yarbros with us. We're so grateful for them uh, sharing with us on Wednesday night and uh, looking forward to seeing how we can continue to partner with them, whether they go to Woodmont or not. Uh, I'm not saying you have to go here, but we are blessed to have them with us and to have them share about what God's doing in Ukraine with us. It's been really interesting for us as parents in this age and stage. I did youth ministry for 12 years, and now we have almost an actual full-blown teenager in our house. Uh, middle school in Metro, you know, they send fifth graders on to middle school, but fifth graders are, are really, you know, children. Uh, but it's been fun to watch Jude uh, about to finish sixth grade here, and he's really grown up physically at least, I'm not sure about other ways, but you know, middle school is such a, a difficult time and people say, oh, you know, middle schoolers today aren't as awkward as they were when I was in middle school with my braces and my middle part. I, I think there's probably pictures somewhere, but I hope they don't uh, show up. Uh, but I've, I've hung out with some of Jude's friends and I honestly don't think much has changed. It's still a very difficult time. It's a very uncertain time. Uh, it's a critical time though in a person's life because you guys are just trying to figure out who you are. You're trying to figure out who God made you to be. You're trying to figure out what's important to you. You're trying to figure out uh, what kind of life you're gonna pursue, all those things. And middle schoolers you know, have this cultural pressure to really know what, who they are and to have it all figured out, have a developed sense of identity, a sense even of what they wanna do with their lives. I'm looking over here at the Mozo Boys too and your family here from Iowa, good to have y'all here today visiting. You know, there's all this pressure, so of course middle schoolers, I was talking with Jude and I was like, you know, middle schoolers really struggle, generally speaking, with insecurity because they're, they're all this pressure on them to, to have it figured out at 12 or 13 or, or 14. And what I'm realizing is that adults are not a lot different. A lot of adults, at least, are still wrestling with this insecurity and still trying to figure out who they are. And a lot of us, even as adults, have, have bought into this idea that culture tells us that we have to live a life 
that is what sociologists or philosophers have been calling expressive individualism. You see this as an educator, Justin, for sure. Yeah, working with, with teenagers all day. Expressive individualism. It's the predominant, really, religion. It's the de facto religion in our culture today. It's this idea that you have to put out this unique self to the world. And if, if that sounds a little philosophical or hard to understand, Tim Keller in his book on preaching talks about how to preach to people in this culture. And he says, if you wanna understand expressive individualism, look no further than Queen Elsa in the movie Frozen, who sings, it's time to see what I can do. To, you probably know this, you young people out there, to test the, or parents of young people, to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Keller says that expressive individualism is, is this. In, in, in this philosophy, identity is not realized as in traditional societies by sublimating our individual desires for the good of our family and people. Instead, we become ourselves only by asserting our individual desires against society, by expressing our feelings and fulfilling our dreams regardless of what anyone says. That's the moral, that's what we hear from like just about every movie or TV show or novel these days is to be this expressive individual. Brian Rosner is an Australian academic and he's a, a believer, he's a solid Christian guy, Anglican guy. He's got a new book out called How to Find Yourself. The subtitle is Why Looking Inward is Not the Answer. He says there's six core tenets, six core principles of expressive individualism. He says, number one, the best way to find yourself is to look inward. Two, the highest goal in life is happiness. Three, all moral judgments are merely expressions of feeling or personal preference. Four, forms of external authority are to be rejected. Five, the world will improve dramatically as the scope of individual freedom grows. And finally, everyone's quest for self-expression should be celebrated. Jonathan Lehman, who's an editor at, at Nine Marks in, in DC, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, he says that that's, that's our natural go-to sinful uh, disposition. That's what our flesh naturally defaults to, expressive individualism. Uh, the Lord's Prayer, however, is not something that we naturally pray. The Lord's Prayer is something supernatural that is a, a, a reordering of our values. The prayer that we naturally pray is the prayer of expressive individualism. Rosner calls this the prayer of the authentic self. It goes like this. My essence within, help me to find my authentic self. My kingdom come, my will be done. From birth to seventh heaven. Give me today my daily spread. Forgive not my enemies as I suppress those who sin against me. Lead me not into self-doubt, but deliver me from all external authority. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are mine. 
now, and forever. That'll give you chills, won't it? And that's how our default sinful flesh works. And these aren't just middle school problems. These are human problems. Apparently, First Baptist Church of Corinth also had the same problems. They were coming to Christ, but they were coming out of a culture where it was very important to be impressive and to be smart and to be well-spoken and well-dressed and to present well. It was about advancing your social station in life. And Corinth was full of these arrogant Greeks who felt like they were superior to the other nations. They, they thought that the other nations were just backwoods sinkholes. It feels good to look down on others, doesn't it? It feels good to feel superior, to feel better than others. It feels good to think that you're a, a winner and that others are losers. And when we do that, it helps us to project our image to a world that is impressed by those things. But it is not God's way. And all this month, we're gonna talk about these texts where we see that God's ways actually are best. They're best for you, they're best for me, they're best for our society, they're best for Nashville, they're best for government, they're best for education, they're best for families. God's ways are best. And we're gonna see that throughout these texts in 1 Corinthians in the month of May. The way of the gospel, the way of the good news of Jesus, the way of God is therefore the only way to truly live. God's ways lead to life. They lead to power, real power. They lead to spiritual victory, which wins every time, even if we lose earthly battles. So what we're gonna see is that the way of the world may seem impressive for a minute, but it's not the way to truly flourish in the long run. In the end, the chasing after the things of this world, our staff has been reading in Ecclesiastes, apparently. We've been doing a lot of uh, references to Ecclesiastes. We see that chasing after the things of this world is just vanity. It's just emptiness. It's just chasing after the wind. It doesn't lead to flourishing or life. That God's ways are actually the truest, the most freeing, the best ways to live. There's a great word called cruciform. Cruciform, you know what cruciform means? It simply means shaped like a cross. You know, geneticists, when they look at, you know, different, uh, you know, genes or something, I'm getting this all the science wrong. Don't correct me, you scientists out there, but that different uh, particles will look like a cross and they say that those are cruciform shaped. Well, what we see in our text for today, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, is that for Christians, we are to live a life that is cruciform in shape. It is to look like the cross of Jesus Christ. So our outline today is going to be about that kind of life, living out the way of the cross in all that we do and all that we are. And we're going to hear that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So I invite you to stand in honor of God's word as I read our text for today. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 21, hear now the word of the Lord. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required that stewards, that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. 
In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers and sisters, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive it? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world the refuse of all things. The word there means the stuff that comes off your shoe when you scrape it. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. This is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may have a seat. You know, it's amazing to me how clearly relevant this text is to our current culture today in which we find ourselves. The cruciform life continues to be ridiculed by those who are outside of the family of God. But it actually is the best way to live, as we said before. It's the most freeing way to live. All this authentic self stuff and this expressive individualism stuff talks about being free. Well, look at verse three, how free the gospel makes Paul. He says, with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Who really cares what people think of us? Since broken and flawed humans have broken and flawed judgments, their judgments don't amount to anything. 
Let's not take their opinions too seriously. And we're even free from self-judgment. I know many of you who are harder on yourself than others are. This is more freeing than, than the judgment of others. The judgment of yourself is also therefore rendered moot. You can now be kind to yourself because of the gospel. Andrew Peterson has a great song called Be Kind to Yourself. He says that those of us who are our own worst enemy, he says you gotta learn to love, learn to love, learn to love your enemies too. The grace of God expressed in the cross of Jesus Christ compels us to love our enemies even if it's ourselves. There's one judgment that does matter though, and it matters greatly. Look at verse four. At the end of it, Paul says, it's the Lord who judges me. The Bible's clear that one day we all are going to give an account for the way that we spent the years that we were given on this earth. So how do we make sure that God's judgment on that day is well done, good and faithful servant? It's not about us being a good person. It's not about us doing enough for God. It's only about believing that God is good and that he has given us his goodness through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's simply about living as faithful stewards of the gospel. That's point number one. I got three words, of course, that start with the same letter, like all preachers do. Uh, the first one is faithful stewards of the gospel. It's about actually believing in your heart that the good news of God's saving love for us is a great treasure, is the greatest treasure, that it's actually good news and therefore more valuable than anything that this world has to offer. And remember, Paul's been trying to, to squash this celebrity status talk that the church in Corinth has been trying to you know, make him or Apollos or Peter into these celebrity pastors. You know, who do you follow? Which podcast do you listen to? Who's, whose name tag do you wear? They're all into this kind of celebrity idea. I was reading an article about churches, I won't say which one, uh, that have green rooms where the, the preachers, you know, put in their rider what kind of snacks they want in the green room so that before and after the service they can hang out and party with the celebrities who may happen to attend the church or not. Uh, the article I read, the guy was calling for a vestry where you put on the garments of worship instead of a green room. I thought that was really good. But that's what was happening in Corinth. It was, became a celebrity culture. And he's been saying, look, who are we? We're not anything. We saw this in chapter three. He said, we're just instruments in the hand of God. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. It's all about God's work, not anything about us. And here in, in the first verses of chapter four, he reiterates that point. This is how one should regard us as servants. That word is also bondservant, like slave, someone who's owned by another. We're servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, what God has revealed to us. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. He's saying, I'm just, I'm just trying to be faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If Paul was building his own kingdom, he would not be faithful to the gospel. 
I've been thinking a lot about Woodmont and about the future of Woodmont and, and what kind of church we're going to be, what kind of church I want us to be. And the word that I keep coming back to over and over again is faithful. I want Woodmont to be a faithful church. I want Woodmont to be faithful to God and to God's word. I, I want Woodmont, like Steve Green sang in the 80s, some of you will remember this if you grew up listening to contemporary Christian music in the 80s like I did. I want all who come behind us to find us what? Faithful, you know it, Calvin. All who come behind us to find us faithful. I want the fire of our devotion to light their way. I want the footprints that we leave to lead them to believe and the lives we live inspire them to obey. May all who come behind us find us faithful. A cruciform life takes seriously the call to leave a faithful legacy to those who come after us. Ron's our facility director. He says all the time, we're just taking care of this place until the next people come. We're gonna be long gone. The improvements that we're making to our building and grounds aren't for us. They're for, the, for those who are gonna come when we're, our bodies are rotting in the ground. That legacy that we need to leave is one of faithful gospel stewardship. Stewardship is such a good gospel word too because it automatically implies that we didn't obtain this life for ourselves. We didn't achieve or accomplish the gospel. The gospel is all 100% grace. It's a 100% gift. The gospel is the unearned, unmerited, undeserved gift of life and love that God has wrought, that he's forged for those who put their trust in Jesus. We're just taking care of what's been entrusted to us. Remembering that keeps our pride and our sense of you know, moral superiority in check. That's the point that Paul makes at the end of verse seven. What do you have that you didn't receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? All that we have and all that we are is the gift of God. But the new converts in Corinth were making the gospel into something to brag about. We got this great new idea. It's superior to all your ideas. You guys get in line. Paul uses an ironic tone with them then starting in verse eight. Oh, you guys are kings now, huh? Wow. He's, we know he's being ironic because at the end he says, would that you did reign. Would that you actually were in charge, because then we could really get somewhere, right? <laughs> then Paul reminds them of the reality of what's really going on for God's true servants, for his apostles, his messengers. It's a call to gospel sanity, as Scotty Smith says. He says, y'all are acting crazy with this king stuff. Let's, let's remember what the truth is. He says, me and my fellow apostles, we're not kings, we're fools in the eyes of the world. That's point number two on your outline. We're fools in the world's eyes. The, the cruciform life looks very different from the kind of life that our culture celebrates. I'm not saying it's wrong to be successful. I'm not saying it's wrong to achieve great success or wealth in the world's eyes. All that's great if God calls you to it. Do that with all your heart. But I'm also saying that the cruciform life isn't about pleasing others or being impressive in the world's eyes. In fact, it often leads to looking like fools in the world's eyes. 
In his most recent book, Courage, by Russell Moore, one of my favorite authors, he says the path of the cruciform life does not, in fact, work if we judge it by the standards of success that have enveloped us since birth. Uh, our, one of our children, I won't say which one, <laughs> Isaiah, um, he, he made a sad choice, and so we, we, we had to punish him, and we, we took all his money, uh, took all his money. He saved some money, and we're gonna, he's going to earn it back, okay? Don't, if you think I'm a cruel person, he's going to earn some of it back. We'll see, maybe. Uh, but he immediately said, he, he cried, and he said, I can't go to college now. I don't have enough money to go to college. I was like, wow, where did he, did we teach him that? Like, un, you know, how did he already think that? And then he said, I'm not going to be able to get a job. I'm not going to be able to earn any money and I'll be poor. At five years old, uh, this is a failure on me and Morgan's part, I guess, uh, that we've already ingrained in him, or the world has, that he's got to have enough money for college, get a good education, and get a job. That that's what life is about. We, we've failed as a society if that's what we're teaching people success is. Moore says in the short run, eye for an eye Darwinism produces much better results than Sermon on the Mount Christianity. We gotta take the long view. God give us an eternal perspective about what really matters and what doesn't. The world thinks of the apostles as fools. Look at verse nine. They're like men sentenced to death. They're a spectacle to the world. Verse 10 says they're weak. They're held in disrepute. They have a bad reputation. Verse 11 says they're hungry and thirsty. They're poorly dressed. They're homeless. Verse 12 says they're reviled. They're persecuted. They're slandered. Remember that the cross, in, in the beginning, for chapter one of 1 Corinthians, the cross is folly to the world. It's foolishness. It's a stumbling block right, that, that, that other people trip up on. If we live a cross-shaped life, we must be okay with appearing foolish, with being like the dirt that's scraped off of one's shoes. We need to ask ourselves honestly whose opinion matters more to us, the opinion of those in the world or the opinion of God. If all that sounds daunting, if you're like, ooh, I don't know if I can do that, there's, there's good news, it's not up to you to do it on your own. We have help. We have a supernatural power that enables us to live a cruciform life. And that power is not only available to us, it's already in us who are regenerate, born again believers. It's not an it really, it's a who. God, the Holy Spirit, who indwells those who are born again into a living hope. That's the third point on your outline. We're filled with Holy Spirit power. Paul makes a personal appeal to the Corinthians in this last part of the chapter. It's deeply pastoral. He calls them beloved children. I'm trying to figure out how to shepherd, how to pastor, how do we love people. We're starting a care list for those people that we haven't seen in a while or, or that we're, we're concerned about, that, that have some issues going on. Just how can we care for them well? How can we love them well? Paul loves these people dearly and he cares like a pastor for them. He's so pastoral in his comments here. And he, he says in verse 14, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children, to teach you, to grow you. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. 
For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He's the one who preached the gospel to them into which they were born again for the very first time. And now Paul desires to see them grow and thrive and flourish as any good father would want for their children. And because Paul's life has become shaped by the cross of Christ, he says to the church in Corinth, make your life like mine. Verse 16, he says, be imitators of me. But there are apparently some people in this young church who've already defied Paul's authority as a father to them, as a shepherd over them. In verse 18, he calls them out as arrogant, as, as proud. The Greek word for arrogant literally means inflated. They're just puffed up with air. They don't think that Paul's gonna come because how dare he? He'd get laughed out of Corinth. He'd get run out. He doesn't have the gumption, they say. But he assures them in verse 19 that he's planning on coming back if God allows it. And look what he says there. He says, I'll come to you soon if the Lord wills and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God doesn't exist in talk, but in power. He's saying talk is cheap. What can these people actually do? What can they actually accomplish? The Greek word for power is dunamis. It's where we get our word dynamite. True power changes things. It changes the face of the earth. Holy Spirit power is what enabled a bunch of ragtag, uneducated fishermen, uh, a tax collector, uh, a violent, uh, murderous Jew, zealous Jew, Pharisee. They enabled all these people, the Holy Spirit enabled them to become the leaders of this movement that would soon spread throughout the globe and come to be known as the church. The whole story of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, these ragtag men and women, is how against all odds, the Spirit came and empowered this very much less than impressive group of people to become an unstoppable force. Nothing will prevail against the church, we're told, not even the very gates of hell. And all the naysayers, all the arrogant, inflated know-it-alls will eventually be exposed as utterly powerless. And the section ends with a, a bit of a warning in verse 21. Paul asks them, what kind of visit do you prefer? When he comes, do you want a corrective visit or do you want one of mutual encouragement and edification? What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? I wonder what Paul would say to us if he visited Woodmont today. Yes, he did not plant this church. He's not our, our spiritual father in that way. But I'm sure he would have some insight for us as to how we could align our lives with the shape of the cross. He probably would recommend the same three things we see in 1 Corinthians 4. He'd probably tell us that the cruciform life is one in which we joyfully play our part as faithful stewards of the good news of Jesus. He would probably tell us that we must learn to be okay with appearing like fools to the non-believing world. And finally, he'd probably assure us that the true church is filled with Holy Spirit power that cannot be stopped by anything in this world. It's not gonna be easy, we know that. 
but it's the best way to live, the only way to truly live. Russell Moore says that the, the Christian life, the cruciform life, will be filled with amazingly wonderful things, but it will also be filled with hardship and suffering. Moore says that as Christians, we already have a category for that. The cross shows us how we can find beauty and brokenness, justice and mercy, peace and wrath, all in the same place. In a culture where expressive individualism is the dominant religion, let's commit to living out the gospel that frees us and others from being curved in on ourselves, like St. Augustine said, and open to live a life of freedom, power, and love. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the gospel that, that tells us that we don't have to do this on our own, that we don't ob obtain righteousness through our own good behavior, but that you have done all that is necessary to make us right with you both now and forever. God, we thank you that your grace was poured out on us and in your perfect love, you made a way for us as sinners to become right with you. That on the cross, justice and mercy kiss. That in the cross of Christ, we find not only abundant grace for all of our sin, we find that you paid that price. We find that you did for us what we could not do for ourselves that you paid the debt that our sins owed, that you died so that we could live. God, we thank you that that news, that gospel news is now entrusted to us. And God, may we be faithful to steward that news well, to, to not take away from it or add to it, to proclaim it boldly week in and week out to acknowledge that it's not anything that we've done, only what we've received from you. God, prevent us from being inflated. Forgive us when we think it's about us. God, we pray that Woodmont Baptist Church would be a faithful church, faithful to you, faithful to your word, faithful to the gospel. And now as we enter this time, God, of communion with you, we ask that you would empower our hearts with your Holy Spirit, that you would fill our hearts with true spiritual power, that no matter what we're facing, for those who are here from Ukraine, for those who are here from all over, God, for those who have been walking the journey of, of watching a loved one make the transition from this life to the next, that you would give them the power they need to be faithful throughout that journey. Lord, as we come to this table now, we ask you to search our hearts. We ask you to prepare us for what you wanna do in us and through us as we leave this place today. God, your word tells us that if there's anything that we're harboring against someone, that we should make that right before we approach the table. God, that we confess our sins to you before we come that we receive again your abundant mercy and grace that covers over all our sin 
and removes our sin as far as east is from west. God, we thank you that you've done that work for us and now the feast of forgiveness is ours to enjoy. Lord, we love you and we pray all this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.